Philippians 4, we've been looking at the last several weeks, six exhortations that Paul gives to us in this chapter. And, and we've said all along that he's, he's winding down, that he started this chapter uh, with the word therefore, and that was kind of his, his turning point, his, his concluding paragraph, if you will. And, and yet, although he is nearing the end, he's not lost his step in providing for us the, the truth that we need to hear. He's not lost his step in providing the, um, the, the ways of which he has um, communicated here. That all of life should be built and centered on Jesus. He said that way back in chapter 1. He has said it continually throughout his, this, this letter. And now here we are as we approach uh, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. He's going, to he's going to continue to keep doing that. But the six exhortations that we looked at in this chapter, in this section, were one, to rejoice. And we talked about what that means two weeks ago, that, that when we are rejoicing, and not just rejoicing, but rejoicing when? Always, in all circumstances, in all situations, even in a time such as this in our world, we are to rejoice because ultimately we know and we have what we said was a settled contentment that whatever matters in this world, whatever's, whatever's um, important in this world, God has already in his sovereignty taken care of it. And so we can rejoice in the fact that God is in control. The second thing we've seen is to be gentle. We want to be gentle in how we communicate with people and how we share the gospel with people and how we interact with one another. Because see, we really, there's, there's, there's two ways you can go about interaction with people. You can be um, uh, belligerent, belittling, uh, difficult, or you can be gentle and loving and caring. We said, don't worry. We talked about anxiety last week and the things that would weigh us down. You remember we even, we even considered how there are, there are physical realities, ways that affect our bodies when we are anxious, when we worry. And how God has called us not to worry, has called us not to be anxious. And we asked, like, well, what is the antidote to that? And that was our fourth exhortation is to, to pray always, that in all things, just like we rejoice always, we are praying always in everything, about everything, that God, knowing he would hear those prayers and answer those prayers according to his will. And so we get to our fifth and sixth things today, to think about good things and to practice faith. And so we're going to read our section of scripture this morning, and I want to ask that in honor of the reading of God's word, would you stand as we read this together? Because this is his word, and we read it and take it as if he is here before us, speaking to us face to face. It, carry, it carries weight and, and seriousness, and we want to consider it well. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Be, do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. God, I pray that as we have read your word, that you will transform us, Father, that we will not just see words on a page and they're empty, but God, that they are the words of life that you have communicated to us. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. God, I ask that you would speak through me. Father, that you would communicate the, the message that you would want us to hear this morning. And we give it all over to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So as we've gone through these six things, we're going to land the plane today, so to speak. As we've gone through these six things, maybe the question you've asked, and I've certainly asked uh, as we started, is what is the purpose of these six exhortations? Like when you you go to exhort somebody, when you go to tell somebody something, what what is the purpose of you doing that? Is it to commend them on something, to encourage them on something, to rebuke them on something, to teach them something? Usually when we use the word exhortation, like it has a connotation of something seriously to be considered. And so if somebody says, I want to exhort you, and that's, that's really not even a word we use, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you do. I don't use that in my everyday vocabulary. But Paul here, when he says to exhort these six things, to think about these six things, to consider seriously these six things... I believe really it's because Paul is building his case, as he has done all along, like we've said, the the main premise of what we've said way back in chapter 1, verse 21, that to live is Christ, that he is at the center of our lives, that everything in life and about life, all of our identities, the the people that we are, the, the person that we are, it is all wrapped up in Jesus. And so for Paul, regardless of life's circumstance, regardless of what he's currently facing, regardless of what might happen in the future, like his life is completely un, uh, unconditionally sold out to Jesus. You remember what he identifies himself in, in the very first sentence of this letter, that I, Paul, a servant, a slave, someone who is Um, given over and under the authority and control of Jesus. Like he he has surrendered himself unto the Lord. That's what it's all about. Like that's what the Christian life is all about. And so even though Paul is closing this letter, we still see that he's got so much more to say to us about what life looks like for the believer. That just because he's, he's ending his time uh, in writing to the Philippians, that doesn't mean that he's done. And so, 
all throughout this letter, we've seen these little pictures of what the Christian life looks like. And, and so maybe you've asked the question, like, these last 17 weeks, we've been in Philippians now, 17 weeks. And maybe you've thought, okay, like, pastor, I hear you. Yes, to live is Christ. I hear you. I, I've seen these little pictures. We've looked at these little, these little thoughts throughout the, the book. But, like, how do we do that? Like practically, how do we do that? What are the, what are the six steps? What are the, 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 the five steps to doing that? Where do I start? You say, I want to be like Paul. I want to make my life about Jesus. But how do I practically accomplish that? I think we find at least an element of that answer in these last two exhortations. Because see, the, the six previous, or the, or the four previous that we looked at, um, really had to do with uh, some behavioral stuff. They had to do with some behavioral stuff. But now we're getting a little bit deeper. We're going to see. He says to think about good things and to practice faith. And so Roman numeral number one, if you're a note taker, is simply this. Think about good things. Your thinking, your mind, in Romans 12 Paul writes to the church there at Rome, and he says this, starting in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see what he has said here, that we are not to be conformed, that is, shaped and molded by the world. We're not to look like the world, but we are to be transformed in the renewal, the making new, the restoring of our mind. In Ephesians 4, I'd invite you to turn there because we're going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians 4. If you have a, a, a bookmark or a, a ribbon or something, I would or keep a finger in Ephesians 4 because we're going to be looking there a lot. But in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17, Paul says this. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of eat of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, and it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Paul calls us to a renewed way of thinking. It's a renewed way of thinking. It's, it's, it's intentionally changing how you perceive things. How you think about things. And, and really it leads to the good life in Christ. And flourishing as a disciple and a follower of him. And when I say flourishing, like I don't mean the, the health and wealth prosperity gospel of flourishing. Like those things are likely not to happen. Like maybe God's blessed you with success. But I, I promise you that, that, that it's not guaranteed. Right? Flourishing isn't what I mean that way. What I mean by flourishing is that our attitude and our perspective continue to stay on Jesus even in the midst of a difficult circumstance. And we're able to, even in that time, say, like Paul, we can echo him in saying, praise God, I rejoice, I exalt him, I lift him up. That's what I mean by flourishing. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul here in Philippians 4 gives us a list of eight things. Eight things. And Paul, like I said many weeks ago, Paul loves himself a good list. Right? He loves himself a good list. And, and there's eight things we want to look at carefully and think through them one at a time. So there in verse 8, he says, first, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is true, and I, I find that so interesting that he would start with truth. Because isn't that the place that we all have to start with? Right? And truth is a necessary starting point. Because in it, it reveals what it is we actually believe. Truth reveals what we actually believe. And without truth, without knowing truth, without having a sound and solid foundation on truth... Really what follows wouldn't be important. Like if we don't get this, everything else doesn't matter. And so we start with truth. The Greek word, we're going to be learning a lot of Greek. There's eight words. We're going to look at every one. All right? So just be ready. You guys are going to be Greek scholars after this. We're going to be looking at this word first, truth. The, the Greek word is aletheis. Aletheis. And it, it, it really means this. It means undeniable reality, what can't be hidden. Undeniable reality, what can't be hidden. And, and that's not what the world practices today. 
recognize it's not what the world thinks today about truth. What the world thinks today about truth is this, this term called relativism, that, that everyone has their own truth, and your truth might be good for you, but it's not good for me, and so don't try to uh, press your truth upon me because I just don't believe that way, that everything is relative, everything is, is, uh, is, is for you or for me, and, and that's how it is. I think of this example of, of a red balloon. Suppose I had a red balloon up here with you. I, I tried to find one, and I, didn't, I don't think we have one in our home. But suppose I had a red balloon here with me today. And I asked you, what color is this balloon? The obvious answer would be red, right? Because its appearance is red. The, the, the way it's made up is red. The, the materials and elements that, that comprise the makeup of this balloon would indicate that it is red. And yet it's, it's very likely that somebody could come by and say, I think that balloon is green. And who are you to tell me that that balloon is anything different? That's what relativism is. That's what relativism is. And so where does this come from? Like that's a deniable reality, Right? Like, the, the reality is the balloon is red. The reality is that it is just what it is. Grass is green. The sky is blue. Men are men. Women are women. Like, that's just the way it is. That's the undeniable reality. But then where do we find this deniable reality? Well, look back. I so said we're going to be flipping back. Look back at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Where does, where does deniable reality come from? Where does relativism come from? It comes from ignorance because of hardness of heart. Where does hardness of heart come from? It comes from sin. Ultimately, it comes from sin. Way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time, and, and the, the world suddenly becomes fractured, and human understanding becomes fractured, and sin, nature, takes over humans, uh, man's heart. And so there's this undeniable reality that exists there. I'm sorry, there's this deniable reality that exists there, that we, we want what we want, no matter what the truth is actually is. We believe what we believe no matter what the truth actually is. And here's something important to think about. Like recognize people don't have a problem with truth because of a lack of understanding it. People have a problem with it because they love their sin too much. Like if you find someone and you interact with someone in your life and they say, well, I just don't understand. And, and you've gone through every, every direction, every which way to try to communicate to them what God's word says. At that point, it's not, a, it's not an issue of understanding. It's an issue of they love their sin and they're not willing to give it up. Well, if we know where deniable reality comes from, then the question we can ask is, where does undeniable reality come from? Look again in Ephesians 4, verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
In John 14, 6, a very famous passage, Jesus communicates, he says about himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So when Paul here says in Philippians 4 to think about what is true, and that word think in the Greek means to ponder deeply, to deeply consider, to let it fill you and consume you. Right? That's what we're thinking about. That's what we're saying when he says think. When he says to think about whatever is true, what he's saying is, is think on Jesus and all that comes from him, all that he has taught you, because he is ultimate reality. Jesus is undeniable reality. And whether you believe that today or in eternity, at some point, you are going to come face to face with that reality. And that reality is going to lead you to either heaven or hell. But you will see that undeniable reality one day. And so Paul here calls us to think about truth because he is truth. Well, 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 where do we find that then? Like, okay, we think about him. We want to learn from him. We want to consider him. Well, you want to know truth? Like, read your Bibles, right? He's communicated to us through his word. So read your Bible. You want to know what's real, what's authentic, what's believable, what's undeniable? Read his word. The second thing we see is honorable. He says whatever is true, whatever is honorable. The Greek word here is semnos. Semnos. Whatever is honorable or reverend or weighty, or deeply respected. That's what he means here when he says whatever is honorable, whatever is revered or reverend, weighty, deeply respected. And this word, semnos, is only used three other times in Scripture. It's, there's, there's four total uses, this here and three other times. Those three other times are in 1 Timothy 3 when describing the qualifications for a deacon. And not just a deacon, but his wife. He, he tells us in 1 Timothy 3, 8, that a deacon and his wife, they must be dignified. That word dignified is the same word he uses here in Philippians 4. The word semnos. And the last time he uses it, again, he uses the word dignified, is in Titus 2, when he describes what a spiritually mature, well-seasoned man of faith should look like. And one of those descriptors he uses is the word dignified, honorable. So what is Paul saying here in Philippians 4, 8, when he says to think about whatever is honorable? Can I just tell you what I think Paul is saying here? See, we all have journeys of faith. That's true of us, right? When we first accept and trust in Christ, we are what the Bible calls babies in the faith. But babies, if you've had one, grow up. They get older. They get more mature. They, they're able to do more, able to process more, able to become more independent. But we all have journeys of faith, and some are babes still, and some have walked for years. But you know what I find incredibly sad in a lot of today's churches? is that there are some who would 
make the claim that they've been followers of Jesus for years. They've walked with him for years. But they're still really spiritually immature. Like they're still really spiritually babies. They're, they're drinking milk when they should be feasting on a big juicy steak. And here's the problem. Vodi Bakum, a, a pastor and, and uh, an apologist, a contributor, he, he describes this as what, we call, what he calls a mediocre culture of Christianity within the church. And, and I believe he's absolutely right. And he, he, he tells it this way. He says that imagine a young man who shows an interest in subjects like theology or doctrine or church history or the like. He, he approaches you. And he says, I just love the church. I just love God's word. I love to read it, to study it, to know what it says. And you would observe his life and you would see that he's always asking questions in Bible study. And he's always serving and participating in the church. He's always there, right? Many people would look at him as a young man and say, wow, God must be calling him to Christian ministry one day. God must be calling him to be a pastor one day. And we would ask the question, like, well, what, why would you say that? What would cause you to say that? And it would be because, well, he shows interest in the things of God. I mean, look at what he's reading. Look at what he's discussing. Look at what he's thinking about and filling his life with. Surely God must be preparing him for a life of ministry one day. Like, shouldn't that be all of us? Shouldn't we all have a desire to, to deepen our understanding of who God is? to deepen our understanding of, of the doctrines and what we believe to be true? Should we have a, a desire to, to know our roots and our history and where we come from and where we're going? And see, what's even more astounding for the most part is that we are completely okay with this mediocre culture of Christianity in the church. We're completely okay with this, under, with this idea that, that for some people, Faith is serious, but I can show up on Sunday every now and again. I don't have to show up during the week or do anything else. I can read my Bible occasionally. I can do this or that occasionally. But for the most part, yeah, things are okay. Like mediocrity in any other field, any other field would be absolutely unacceptable be absolutely unacceptable, but not in the church, right? Not in the church. Like, things are what they are. Not too serious, but, but, but just enough that we get by, and that's okay. What's absolutely crazy to me, man, I'm going to pick on you for a minute. What's absolutely crazy to me is we see this, the amount of men that exist and participate in the church, that have the maturity level, the spiritual maturity level of little boys. Like, it's, it's crazy to me. Can, can I say something a little bit audacious? Grow up. Grow up, men. Like, put the controller down, turn the TV off, turn the video games off, for goodness sakes, shut the computer off, and pick up a book. Can I say something maybe even more harsh? I don't mean this to be antagonizing. I don't mean this to be mean. Like, hear me, men. I love you. 
But I just feel this is true of the culture today. Like, do you want to know why you're having such a hard time getting your family, your kids, your spouse, whoever it is, to take or grow in anything spiritual? Because you don't do it yourself. Like, you don't do it yourself. You're not modeling it yourself. You're a grown man hanging out in the kiddie pool. It's shameful. Grow up. Mature. And again, men, I'm speaking to you like, ladies, we'll get to you in a minute. I need this. Like, I need this too. Men, God has called us and commissioned us to lead and to love our homes as Christ has loved his church unconditionally, sacrificially, deeply committed to her, giving his life up for her. Men, what are we leading our homes in? What are we leading our families in? What are we thinking about? What are we modeling with our lives, the way we act, the way we talk, the things we do? What are we modeling is important to us? What are we showing is valuable in life? Is it a deep and rich spiritual walk with the Lord? Is it a relationship with, with him and his church? Or is it something else? Is it hobbies, weekends, vacations, stuff? Ladies, especially the ones who've walked with the Lord for a while, When's the last time you've taken a younger woman under your wing and said, let me walk with you? Dear sister, let me show you God's word and the principles of it. Let me, let me share with you my experiences. I have grown and walked with the Lord for many seasons. When's the last time you've done that, ladies? How quick are we to look at others and judge and condemn them before we're willing to walk with them? Church, if we're not thinking about honorable things, weighty things, things that, that as Paul addresses would, would mark a level of spiritual maturity that would indicate us for greater church leadership such as a deacon or an elder. Like if we're not thinking about these things, all we're doing is raising a weak and mediocre culture of faith that doesn't take faith all that serious. They don't take God and his word all that serious. And how will, we, how will we ever be effective for the kingdom? How will we ever be effective with the gospel if we don't first take it serious in our own lives? We're called to think on honorable things. The third thing he calls us to think about is just. He says whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is just. The word just here is the Greek word dikaia. And it describes what is in conformity to God's own being, his will and his standard of righteousness, right, rightness, and thus being uh, upright. And thinking about this um, it means really you begin to align yourself. 
your sense of morals and ethics, the framework that comprises how you see the world, you begin to align yourself to God's word. Again, we, we use and understand it to be the one and only source, right, of truth. God's word is the only standard of truth that we have. And as we read it and study it and think on it, we're thinking of what is just. What does God reveal in his word as the standard of justice and righteousness and rightness? Again, Ephesians 4, 20 through 29. That's not the way you've learned in Christ, assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former life, manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put, the new, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. See, when we're thinking about God's just, when we're thinking about God's rightness, when we are beginning to align ourselves with his rightness, there's this exchange from the old framework of our minds to the new framework of our minds as we are called to live Christ-like. And so through careful study and application of his word, we see that old mentality of what we thought we knew being crumbled and torn down. And we begin to see how his word shapes us and form us in this new life that Paul describes here. But again, we, we can't think rightly on what is just. We can't be conformed to God's standard of rightness unless we are taking time to read his word and discover what he has said is his standard. A lot of Christians, unfortunately, just assume they know. Like they just assume, well, God wouldn't want me to do that. Well, how do you know? Point to the chapter and verse where it says that. We want to not assume. We want to read and know with certainty. And like, here's the crazy thing. Like, we don't have to guess. Why would you ever guess when he's given it to us? Like he has said in his word, you don't, you don't need to, to guess. There's no need for trial and error to discover what works. Like, here's my word. Read it and know it. And there's a lot of tra rabbit trails we could chase with this idea of justice. In, in our world today, certainly there are, there are cultural comments we can make. And we're not going to do that this morning. It's not the time or place. But I'll just say this. Like, 
What is becoming more and more acceptable in churches today as you read through kind of what's happening between the the secular world culture and the church culture of today is churches are letting culture and outside ideologies influence and shape how they think about such things. That is dangerous and it will destroy a church body. We stand or should stand on God's word alone as the only required text or influence that would speak to such matters. We don't need anything else because God's word is sufficient enough for it. We need only think on it and know it. The fourth thing he gives were, y'all gotta listen faster. The fourth thing he gives in Philippians 4. He says, whatever is true and honorable and just, whatever is pure. That word pure in Greek is the word hagnos. It's the word hagnos. And it means holy or ceremonially clean. Think about the sacrificial system here of the Old Testament, where there, there has to be a level of purity that exists within that sacrifice. Like it was the, the unblemished lamb, the perfect lamb. That's what, we, that's what he wants us to think about when he says pure and holy. As were, when Paul here tells us to think on things that are pure, he's calling us to consider what is holy in our lives. Or really, maybe the lack of holiness in our lives. In the patterns of your life, what you say, what you watch, what you listen to, like, would those things be considered as holy? Now, I don't, I, like, at the risk of sounding legalistic, like, I'm not saying you can't listen to uh, nothing but Christian music. I'm not saying you can't watch any movies that aren't Christian music or uh, Christian movies or TV shows. But here's what I want us to ask. Like, would you invite Jesus to participate with you in those things? Would you be comfortable if Jesus were sitting on the couch next to you watching Game of Thrones or some other show? See, sometimes that's an elementary question to ask, and it's, it's a little bit cliche. It's a Jesus juke. I get that. But, but what I think makes it so easy and, and good to ask is because it instantly makes us feel uncomfortable about the things that we do because we're immediately confronted with the realities of the level of personal holiness in our lives and the things that they produce. And like I'm not saying again you can't ever watch TV ever again. You can't ever listen to music or, or dare I even say again secular music. But I think what Paul would caution us here to deeply consider, to think about, is the level of holiness in the things that you participate in. Is it pointing you to Jesus? Is it growing your affections for Jesus? As a non-believer, I used to listen to a band called Green Day. Green Day was probably one of my favorite absolute favorite bands as, as a young kid. They were, 
They're, they're in the punk rock scene. They're rebellious. Their, their music is, is phenomenal. Like, don't get me wrong. Their musicianship, their skill is out, outside this world. It's, it's amazing. They don't use all the, the technology of, of music today. Like, they play their instruments. They're, they're great. But what I discovered after I became a believer, and I would listen to their music, what I discovered is that when I would turn it on, it was because I was already in a rough and dark place in my life. Like I was already struggling with something, wrestling with something spiritually, and so I would supplement that wrestling with Green Day. And it would do absolutely nothing to turn my affections to Jesus. Like it would do absolutely nothing to help me get out of that darkness and back into a life pursuing Jesus. In fact, what it often did is it pulled me further into the darkness. It pulled me further away from Jesus. It turned my affections more away from him. Now, again, like I liked the music, own all the albums, have them all. I loved the music. And even some of the messages within the lyrics were okay. Like they were, they were good songs. But ultimately what I found is, is that overall it weakened me spiritually. But to think on things that are pure, does it increase your affections for Jesus or does it hinder it? But to think on things that are pure. Number five, we're to think on things that are lovely. Think on things that are lovely. The Greek word here is prosphiles, meaning worthy of personal affection, dearly loved, worth the effort to have and embrace. I love that. Like when you think of this word, is it worth the effort to have and embrace? And it's the only time this word is used in all of the New Testament is right here in verse 8. And Paul here, using this word, actually intends it to be a reflection of our personal lives. Are we this way? Do people see us this way? One commentator said it like this. He said, the word rendered lovely basically means that which calls forth love or that which is love-inspiring. One may thus render lovely as that which causes love or what people want to love. When it is used of man, it describes someone who is winsome in personality, is friendly and pleasant to be with. He is attractive, amiable, and lovable. Do people see you this way? Like as you think on things that are lovely, you're to be thinking of yourself. Am I lovely? Do people want to love me? Do they want to be with me? Do they want to spend time with me? Do they want to be around me? Am I likable? Am I attractive? And I don't mean that in a sense of like, like, like bolstering your ego. And we're not even necessarily looking for like a romantic sort of love. But as we exist within the body of Christ, we all have different personalities. We all have different places that we, we, we come from, ways in which we walk and live and do things. 
but we're called to live unified in the body of Christ. The question is, in that unity, do people want to be with you in that unity? Like, do people love you? It should never be said. There's an expression that that a person is just hard to love. Like, I love them, but they're hard to love. That should never be said of a person in the body of Christ. That should never be said of someone who loves Jesus. The sixth thing is commendable. We're getting there, I promise. It's commendable. You can't break this up. It all flows together. It's commendable. He says, think on things on whatever is commendable. The Greek word here is euphemos. Euphemos. And that weird word means well reported of, reputable. And Paul's charge here is, is really to think about and talk about things that are worth talking about. To think about and to talk about things that are worth talking about. Jump back in Ephesians 4, verse 29, another well-known verse. He says, let no corrupt talk come from your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. When you speak and what you are speaking about, is it giving grace to those who hear it? Are you talking about things that are worth talking about? Now, this also means no gossiping. Like, this also means no gossiping. That's the opposite of commendable. And, and, and like, can I just, like, don't have a false concern for somebody. Don't call someone up and say, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? I'm worried. Please tell me more. Like, don't have a false, don't gossip. Speak about, think about things that are worth thinking about. Number seven, he says, if there is any excellence, the Greek word here would would indicate any moral excellence, which is displayed to enrich life. Paul here wants us to think about the things that would help encourage us to keep us going. He's trying to draw our minds to think on Christian virtue. Now, interestingly, interestingly, like the first six of this list of eight, those are all virtuous. Those are all things of virtue. If you look back at that list, they're lived out. They're displayed. They're strengthened as we grow as believers. That's what virtue is. Warren Wearsby said this, that if something has virtue to it, it will motivate us to do better. Think about those whom you look up to spiritually. Think about the spiritual heroes in your life. Why do you look up to them? Typically, it's because they display a certain virtue of their life that is attractive and desirable. Those are things that Paul says to think and dwell on. Then number eight, he says, if there is anything worthy of praise, anything worthy of praise, I think that's a loaded sentence, or at least it should be for the believer, because the reality is there are lots of things that are worthy of praise. 
Like God has a lot to be praised and worshipped for in our lives, even if we don't realize it. I love the, the worship song, 10,000 Reasons. Because the, the premise of that whole song, 10,000, seems like a fairly large number, but that, that whole song really denotes that, that there are at least 10,000 things that we could come up with or more to praise God about. Do you praise him often? Do you think about praising him often? There's an old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Are you thinking about the way in which God has blessed you and then as a result of that, offering back your praise unto him? Where to think about anything that is worthy of praise. And then number six of our exhortations, and we're wrapping up. He says, practice faith. Verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What you have learned and received, that's the, that's the academic Right, that's the book smarts. We 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 mentioned a long while ago. Like Paul is is equally book smart and street smart. Right. So what you have learned and received, that's the the academic. What you have heard and have seen, that's the experiential. And like recognize that the Christian life is a mixture of both. That we we learn through uh, both God's uh, study of God's word and through other extracurricular stuff, outside stuff that is derived from God's word, but we learn academically, uh, rooted in our minds, what it is God's word says. But then we learn also experientially as we go about living life. He says, practice these things. And recognize, like, practice is essential. Practice requires Action on our part. We have to actually do it. We have to start somewhere. You remember when we looked at first at Philippians 3, where Paul says uh, in verse 16, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And then he commissions them. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Like you have to start somewhere in practice. But see, practice, if you think about in terms of an athlete, which Paul talks to in this letter, he uses, he uses wording that would indicate athletes. If you think about athletes, practice increases strength and ability and wisdom and understanding. Like, do you know why professional athletes are able to perform at the level in which they do? Because they practice. Do you know how you get better at your job? You have experience, which is just another word for practice. The more you do it, the better you get at it, right? Do you know how musicians are able to play such amazing and beautiful music? It's through practice. Friends, if we want to grow in our faith, if we want to experience God on a deeper level than he currently exists in our lives, we must practice, practice, practice. And what do we practice? We practice this. 
We practice what his word says. We let it fill our lives and enrich our lives. Remember, Paul here is written specifically to a group of people, but he's writing it under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Like God is telling us, he's exhorting us in this, practice your faith. Practice your faith. Do you know how you can spot a person who is serious about a sport or a hobby or trade or passion? They practice it. You know it. You can see it evident about them. They want to try to do better. Do people see you practicing your faith today? Can it be said of your life by someone observing you that you are actively practicing your faith, trying to grow in it, trying to get better in it, trying to strengthen it? See, I fear in our Western church culture, that's not the case for many. Like there are those that they just don't take faith serious enough. Oh, they take it serious enough to be on the team, but they're more than satisfied to just sit on the sidelines and let someone else participate. And church, look what the world has come to as a result. Because we've not called out sin We've not called out unrighteousness. I pray that we would be a church that practices our faith with great ferocity so that people may know our Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, I pray and thank you for your word. God, I know we went a little bit long today, and I was long-winded, and God, I thank you for sustaining my voice in that as I was a little bit dry, and God, I just pray that we would hear your, your exhortations, the, the, the eight ways in which we can go about practicing our faith, the eight ways in which we can go about molding ourselves and shaping ourselves, uh, renewing the mind that we have, thinking about good things. God, as we seek to live out these six exhortations and more that you have called us to. Father, I ask that if there be someone here that they have no idea what I'm even talking about. God, maybe they've just, they've wrestled with faith and knowing what is real, what is true. God, they don't call you Lord or Savior or Master. May you reveal their sin to them and help them to know and understand that they must repent and call upon you. God, I thank you again for your love and your grace. I ask that you would just be with us now as we continue to worship and close. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.